I am delighted uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, it is the highest privilege uh, that I ever have to preach the gospel. And I am especially grateful for the opportunity to uh, preach where Michael is pastor. You know, it is customary, and I've gotten to where I turn it off. Anytime a guest preacher comes to a church, he says wonderful things about the pastor. Well, I'm going to do it anyway because it's true. Uh, I have known Michael for a long time, met him when he was a young man, had the privilege of working with him on my church staff, have never known a finer man, have never worked with a better staff member, and maybe some that were close I've known, but none better, and have never known a man in the ministry with a finer wife than he has. And it is a special joy to be with you this morning. People are the bottom line in the ministry of the church. And if we want to have our priorities straight, people have to come first. People hurt. The greatest problem that people face is the problem of pain and grief and suffering. I don't know why it is that in uh, this great country that we live in, conservative Christians seem to feel that when they get together in the Lord's house and when they fellowship with other Christians, they have to act like everything's wonderful when they are dying inside. And everybody is. Well, now let me, let me modify that a little bit. The message is for you today if you hurt. But if you don't, you better listen anyway because you will. The question is not, will pain ever come? The question is when. The question is how and what the circumstances will be. It is okay to hurt. You need to be willing to admit that. And we as the church must be there for those who hurt. Throughout, the Bible talks about pain and suffering. In Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and other places. But this morning, I want you to look at a little book with me that is largely unfamiliar. It is the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is at the end of the Old Testament. If you will go to Matthew 1 and turn left about 30 pages, you will find the little book of Habakkuk. And this morning, the message is going to be drawn from the text of this marvelous book from the Word of God. Now let me tell you a little bit about the man Habakkuk. We don't know too much about him personally, but we know when he lived. He was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. He lived and ministered just before the time when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and her people were taken captive to the city of Babylon. It was a, an unusual time in which he lived. The times were good. The nation was seemingly 
prosperous. The economy was strong. But destruction was just around the corner. And men like Jeremiah and Habakkuk were trying to deliver God's message that without repentance there was no hope. But no one listened. Recent discoveries of an ancient library in that area of the world have produced contemporary writings that talked about the most pressing problems in the days of Habakkuk. You want to know what they were talking about on the evening news? Oh, what was that, about 2,500 years ago? Here it is. They were concerned about the imminent outbreak of international hostilities. They were worried about war. They were concerned about the breakdown of the home, about the rebellion of the youth. There was corruption in high places, but one of the most emotional topics of discussion was bad roads with chug holes. You know, times change. That entire civilization has been buried by the winds and the sands of time. But Solomon wrote a long time ago, there is nothing new under the sun. So we do well to listen to the message of Habakkuk. Now, what I want to do is look at four statements that Habakkuk made and three answers that God gave him. Habakkuk is a unique book in all of the Bible. Of course, I suppose that they all are, but Habakkuk is unique in that it is the only book in the Bible that only addresses God. Habakkuk does not write a message to somebody else. He's not preaching a sermon. He's got a problem and he goes to God and he talks to God. It's unique in that respect. It is a conversation between a man and God. Now the problem that Habakkuk thought he had was the silence, the inactivity, and the seeming unconcern of God for human suffering that he saw around him. This little book has three chapters. In chapter 1, the prophet is troubled. In chapter 2, the prophet is taught. In chapter 3, the prophet is triumphant. But let us look at the statements of Habakkuk. Notice first, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, this is the opening statement of his conversation with God. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Sounds like Oklahoma, doesn't it? Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes out perverted. 
Now Habakkuk was writing in good times. The bad things hadn't happened yet, and yet his statement is so urgent. It is so accusative of God. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, how long am I going to have to cry for help and you don't do anything about it? In verse 3, why do you make me look on all this junk that's around? Verse 4, therefore. Now get the, the significance of what he says in verse 4. He says, therefore, go back to verse 2. You won't hear. You won't save. Verse 3, why do you make me see this and make me see wickedness? He says, therefore, because of you. The law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous and judgment comes out perverted. Now, it has never occurred to me to be quite that tacky when I talk to God. He must have felt very strongly about what he was concerned about. His first statement is a statement of frustration. It is a statement of self-righteous, holy indignation that God ought to get off wherever he's sitting and go do what needs to be done. Habakkuk has a problem. Can you relate to that? Did you ever think that God wasn't doing anything? I can see the wheels turning. Somebody that's honest is saying inside, well, not since about 9 o'clock this morning. Habakkuk really had a problem. Do you know what problem he had at this point? He was concerned because in the nation of Israel, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer and people were not treating each other fairly. Now that's a valid concern. And that's what he was upset about. And he didn't understand why if Israel were, uh, was the chosen nation of God, that God did not do something about that. Now before we go on, and this is really outside the flow of the message, but I want to make this statement. Notice that at least Habakkuk took his problem to God. He did not ignore God. He did not become bitter. He did not become perplexed. He did not abandon his faith. He went and he told God that he was hurting. Let me make this suggestion. When you hurt, when you're frightened, when you are angry, when you're confused and you wonder why God doesn't act, tell him about it. I'm glad you're sitting down because I know you'll be shocked to learn that he already knows how you feel. But it will do good for you to say it and you need to realize that he can take it and he's not going to rebuke you for it. Tell him he can take it. Now notice in Habakkuk 1, 5 through 11, here is God's first answer. Now I'm not going to read all of these verses, but here is what God replies to the prophet when he's concerned that people are not being nice to each other. 
He says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. God says to Habakkuk, you just think you have a problem. Wait till you see what happens next. You know, Habakkuk now has a real problem. He just thought he had one before. But now God says, not only are people going to continue to mistreat each other, but I am going to raise up the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, were a fierce and bloodthirsty people. They were the most wicked, the most cruel nation on the face of the earth. When they conquered, they didn't just conquer, they destroyed all will to resist. When they conquered, they uh, exiled to Babylon the very best of the people, and they killed everybody else that could cause a rebellion. When they left a city they had conquered, they would mark the roadways with pyramids of severed heads as a witness to their power. And God says to Habakkuk, now I am going to raise them up and they're coming. Notice in verses 12 through 17, here is Habakkuk's second statement. In verse 12, in the first part of verse 13, he gives God a lecture. In verse, the end of verse 13, down through verse 17, he accuses God. I think we ought to read this, beginning with verse 12 of Habakkuk 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die parenthesis, will we? You, Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Then he begins his list of accusations. Why do you look with favor on the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up the righteous? Why do you make men like the fish of the sea? And now my paraphrase, and the bad guys come along with a dragnet and drag them out of the sea onto the beach where they die. He really has a problem now. You could state his problem simply by saying this. Habakkuk's problem is that God's plan of action violated Habakkuk's theology. Has God ever violated your theology? Well, if you ever get a theology, he will violate it. Doesn't matter what it is. He has told us in Isaiah that his ways are as high above ours as the sky is above the earth, and his thoughts and our thoughts do not ever coincide. He will violate your plan of theology. Habakkuk now lectures and cross-examines God. Now, we read that. He says to the Lord, you're too pure to behold evil. 
You can't even look at what these people do. You won't let us die, will you? And then he gives them a list of accusations. Now, you know, I think I've been around enough preachers to realize that when Habakkuk was delivering this lecture to God, when he was through, he said to himself, I have covered all the bases. I have answered all his objections. What can he say now? Nothing. He was right because God's second answer is silence. Between the last verse of chapter 1, when Habakkuk stops talking, and the first verse of chapter 2, when he starts talking again, nothing was said. It is a good object lesson to realize that God very seldom repeats himself. Now, it's hard for us to relate to this, but do you realize that God has never said, oops? God has never had to say, thank you for explaining that to me. I didn't understand. God has never had to say, I didn't know that. God has never had to say, forgive me, I didn't mean to say that. He said it, he means it, and when he speaks, he's not going to speak again until you do what he tells you to do. It's that simple. God always uses an economy of words, and he never says a word that he does not mean. I wish, desperately I wish, that I knew what Habakkuk thought when God was silent and did not answer a second time. Because I've been there, but I have not always come to the kind of conclusion that he came to in chapter 2. Let me give you a preview of the punchline of the book of Habakkuk and of everything the Bible has to say about pain and suffering. The bottom line is, the answer is, there is no answer to the problem of pain and grief and suffering. That's the bottom line. And if you want to know how to handle it, read what Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 2, verses 1 through 4. Here is Habakkuk's third statement. Or rather, it's just in verse 1. He says, now, you know, why I wish that I knew what he thought was there is such a radical transformation between what he just said and what he says now. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Habakkuk says, I don't have the answer, but I will go to the place where I belong. I will go to my post. I will obey God myself. 
And since I know that the people will not accept this message, I am going to stay there until God tells me what to say when they reject it. That's awesome for a man to be able to say that. The Lord answered him once, and it only created more questions. And he doesn't answer the questions. But Habakkuk has now decided to wait. He does not let doubt and fear turn him away from God, even though he does not understand. God's third answer is found in verses 2 through 4 of this second chapter. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it certainly will come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. God says to Habakkuk, not only is what I said before going to happen, and not only do I just want you to preach it, but I want you to put it on a billboard for everybody to see. That the one who reads it may run. Now that may mean that a runner could look at it and see it because it was written big and plain. Or it could mean make it so clear, make it so precise that a runner could read it and run again to warn others of the judgment of God. He says it will come. It will come. The word that is used in the Hebrew is like a runner who is straining for the finish line of a race. He may pant and he may gasp, but he stretches himself and he strains to reach the finish line as fast as possible. He says that his judgment has an appointment. You cannot hurry it, but it will never be late. God's promise cannot fail any more than the sunrise can. You know, the Bible has several things to say about that, and I'm not going to read them, but I want you to think about it. The Bible says several places that the promises of God are more certain than the rising and the setting of the sun. As surely as the sun will come up tomorrow, you may trust a sovereign God who holds all things in the palm of his hand. Now in the latter part of verse 4 of chapter 2 is the key statement in the book of Habakkuk. This is the plan. It's not the answer, but it's the plan. God says to him, the righteous will live by his faith. Three times in the New Testament, this statement is repeated by the Apostle Paul in the great first chapter of the book of Romans, where he is teaching us the deep and wonderful things about God. Again by Paul in Galatians 3, 11, 
and again by the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 38. And this little statement, the righteous will live by his faith, has became one of the cornerstones of New Testament theology. Now, we're not going to look at it because I want to get to the happy stuff. But God goes on to say that he will punish the Babylonians. You don't have to worry about the bad guys. God will take care of them. They're his problem. And if you let the bad guys ruin your life, they've won and you've lost. You don't worry about them. The Bible says don't even want them to get what they've got coming or God may see your hard heart and take mercy on them. Let God worry about other people. Like us, Habakkuk wanted to understand everything, but God told him that could never be in this life. You have to trust God in the dark because all of the answers will not be known until you go to live with him forever. The world says seeing is believing. Faith says believing is seeing. In chapter 3, the prophet is triumphant. His fourth statement, verses 1 through 19, the entire third chapter, is a beautiful, moving, poetic prayer. It is a model for us in times of pain, in times of sorrow and grief, in times of betrayal and rejection when life has fallen in on us. And like Habakkuk, it is marvelous that we can learn to close our mouths and open our ears to listen for God as Habakkuk did. Habakkuk sees the inevitability of judgment and destruction, and yet he comes to the place that though he knows everything will be lost, he can still trust God. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 3. Habakkuk says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. And he goes on to describe what he expects to come, the judgment and the fury of God. He makes statements of his faith. And he comes, and I want to focus the last few minutes in on the last four verses of the book of Habakkuk. Notice with me, if you will, the bottom line of the book of Habakkuk. He comes though he knows God is just, God is righteous, God will rule, he will reign, uh, unrighteousness will be punished, judgment is coming. He knows all of that, but he comes after a journey of heartbreak and turmoil to a destination of not resignation, not just resigning himself, but of praise and thanksgiving to God. Let's read these verses, and then I want to look at them for a moment. I heard, and my inward parts trembled, at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bone, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree 
should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me walk on my high places. Now notice in these verses some of the things Habakkuk was rejoicing about. He was rejoicing uh, in fear and apprehension in verse 16. In verse 17, he was rejoicing about conquest. I must wait for the people to arise who will invade us. In verse 17, he is rejoicing about famine and economic ruin. There will be no food and the basis of their economy will be destroyed. But in verse 18, he says, I will rejoice in God. And in verse 19, he says, I will rely on God. I don't know where you hurt, but I know the chances are excellent that you do. I do not have a rational, reasonable answer, nor does the Bible. But the Bible affirms, as did the prophet Habakkuk, as did Paul and Silas when they sang at midnight in a Roman dungeon, the answer is that you can always trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not know the purpose of every pain, of every grief, but I do know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says we are afflicted so that we can comfort others when they are afflicted. I do know that you can trust Him no matter what the circumstance and that He will give you the peace and the joy that will allow you to say, yet I will trust Him. I will exult in Him. I will rejoice. I will rely. And He will set my feet on the highest places. There are, are so many things that we can learn from this marvelous little book. But let me point out just a very few things of application that we can take that I trust you will use today. Number one, God never stifles a sincere question. You need to tell God how you feel. You're not going to be able to communicate with God if you are afraid to express to Him where you, feel, where you hurt and the way you feel down deep. God never stifles a sincere question. Number two, some answers will never come in this lifetime. Number three, in every crisis, God can be trusted. Number four, when faith is swept off its feet, we find that it has wings to fly. May we pray.
gracious, sovereign Lord, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 